shall not murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Remind you as we get started this morning that you do have a, a sermon guide, and on it you will see uh, a number of other scriptures printed and I'll be referring to those so you can have them in front of you and get to them pretty easily. Uh, but this is a command. It's an interesting command because there's one of two trajectories that this command takes. Okay, one is at a cultural level. And at a cultural level, it's very easy to apply this command, right? Uh, you name it. Abortion the massive shootings that we see in schools and recently with police, and we don't have to try to figure out where this command fits in our culture. But there's another trajectory of this command, and that is not at the cultural level, but at the personal level, in personal hearts. And that's where the tendency is to gloss over this command. Because you and I read it and go, well, I haven't murdered someone. I haven't shot someone, you know, maybe I, I haven't committed one of those big cultural violations of the sixth commandment. And so it really doesn't apply personally, but I'm very quick to apply it out there. And what I hope this morning to do is to make this command certainly relevant out there, although that doesn't take a lot of work to get there. We know what the issues are but to make this command relevant to your heart and your life. Because it's a big command and it encompasses a lot. Why is the sixth commandment relevant to your life? And to answer that, we're gonna answer three questions this morning. What is murder? What causes murder? And then what produces life? So let's start with what is murder? The, the Hebrew word that's used here refers to killing that is unlawful or forbidden. So it doesn't refer to killing of animals or, or, or killing in war. Uh, it, it's, it's not as broad as killing in general, and that's why a number of translations translate it murder. There's a, uh, there's a, a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 19. In fact, Deuteronomy 19 to Deuteronomy 22 spell out a number of um, ways that the Ten Commandments are lived out very specifically in life. So how is the Sixth Commandment lived out? There's some examples in Deuteronomy 19 to 22. And one is Deuteronomy 19.5. It says this, when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head of the axe slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. You say, well, it's accidental, right? Somebody's chopping down wood and the handle slips off the ax and it kills somebody. Interesting, the word that's used there for the person responsible is a form of the verb that's used in the sixth commandment. And, and so what we see is that this, this word murder is not as broad as just killing, but it's certainly uh, broader than just murder. 
And so what we want to talk about are what are the different forms of murder. And this is where as we talk about this, hopefully it will dial into your heart to a personal level. So what are the different forms of murder? I'm going to give you just three categories. There's a lot of categories, but I think this will help you understand what this command is really getting at. Three categories. One would be taking life unjustly. The second would be carelessness. And the third would be indifference. Now let me explain those. Taking life unjustly, that one's probably the most obvious. That would include uh, murder as we know it, uh, abortion, uh, euthanasia, suicide, all those would fall underneath the category of taking life unjustly. Now, what about carelessness? What does that refer to? Well, interesting, the verse I just read you where the axe handle or the axe head falls off the handle, that, that would fall underneath carelessness. Um, there's, another, there's another verse in Deuteronomy 22, says this, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, which is just a wall, okay? For, the, for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Okay? When they built houses in that day, they would actually, the rooftop would be where you had your parties and your big fellowship time. <laughs> and what the verse says is, put a wall around the outside of your roof so somebody doesn't fall off. Right? In other words, don't be careless. Right? Take precautions against the loss of life. That falls underneath the sixth commandment. And then the last category would be indifference. And I use the word indifference instead of hate because when I use the word hate, there's a number of people that would just you kind of check yourself out of that. First um, John 3.15 says this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Indifference is the final form of hate. Okay? It's a lack of concern. It's a lack of empathy. There's a lot that falls underneath those three broad categories. Let me read you, this is out of the Westminster Confession a description of what's included in the sixth commandment, underneath what it means to murder, what the forms of murder are. Taking away life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. That's the taking life unjustly. Or the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Okay, that would fall underneath the careless category, right? When you, when you take away things that fail to protect life and take precautions against the loss of life. And then here's the next category. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Now you see, that's an exhaustive list. That covers a lot. But do you see what it's getting at? Anything that takes life away. And you'll notice there, and what the sixth commandment is talking about is much more than just physically taking away somebody's life, death. Think about the person that goes into a counseling appointment and they tell their counselor that they've been scarred over a number of years through abusive and manipulative words. What are they saying? They're saying a piece of my life has been taken or a portion of my heart has been scarred 
And functionally, my life has been taken away. Or consider the person whose name has been dragged through the mud and has completely lost their reputation, right? That's murder, right? A piece of their life has been taken away. So anything that takes life versus giving life falls under this category of murder. Now, that being said, what is the foundational problem of murder? Why is it such an offense? Why does it fall in the Ten Commandments? Genesis 9-6 says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for, here's the reason why, right? Why is the shedding of a man's blood so offensive to God? Here it is, for God made man in his own image. We're back to the image of God. You remember last week we talked about the image, the weightiness of the image of God as it relates to us honoring one another, right? We honor one another because the weight of God is so, is is heavy. And so we give weight and worth to people. This week we talk about the image of God, but the ownership aspect of the image of God. It's his image. It belongs to him. And so you and I have no right to take life Physically, emotionally, spiritually, we have no right to take the image of God and use it for selfish gain. It's stealing. That's why it's offensive. It's stealing what belongs to God. Years ago in the previous neighborhood I lived in here in Jacksonville, walked out of my front door one day and I looked left to my neighbor's house in in their driveway and their SUV, it was, I remember it, well. It was a GMC Envoy. And the bumpers on this thing were dented, scratched. Half of them were ripped away from the steel bumper on the inside. The side of the Envoy was scratched and dented. There was mud and grass hanging out of the fenders and the cracks in the door. The front left tire was flat. And I went, what in the world happened to Corey's car? Later that day, I'm outside, and Corey comes outside. I said, Corey, what happened to your car? And he said, a couple of people stole it, went on a joyride, went mudding in the woods, and left it out in the woods. They finally found it. They towed it back to his house. I didn't see the inside of it. He said, Keith, the inside of it was trashed. So here you had a couple people that took what wasn't theirs, and used it and trashed it for selfish gain. When you steal life, when you take life from somebody in all the various forms that we just looked at, you're taking what's not yours. It's the image of God. It belongs to God. It's his, and you take it and use it for selfish gain, and in some cases, you trash a life in the extreme cases. That's why it's so serious. That's why it's one of the Ten Commandments. That's that's why God takes it so seriously. That's the foundational issue with murder. God and God alone decides when to give and when to take life. Only he has the right to do so. We don't. So that's what murder is. Now let's move on 
to talk about what causes murder. And this is going to get down to a heart level. What causes us to murder or to take life physically, emotionally, spiritually, in all the various forms we talked about? And there's three causes that, that come out in the Scriptures. And we're going to look at those. And what I want you to see is that each cause of murder produces anger which eventually makes its way to murder. And that's what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll take a look at that. But let's start with envy as the first cause of murder. And to look at envy, to explore it, we're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. So if you'll look at Genesis 4, verses 2 through 8. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's the first account of murder in the Bible. And it doesn't happen but one chapter after sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3. And what you have here are two brothers, and they both bring an offering to God. Abel's is accepted, Cain's is not. We learn in Hebrews 11 that Abel's is accepted because he brought it forth in faith and he was commended as righteous. And Abel's was, and Cain's was not accepted. And so Cain gets angry and envious, right, of his brother's successful offering and acceptance before God. That anger, that envy rises up and he kills his brother. You know, envy, envy at the heart is I, I want what that person has. And if I can't get it, I'm going to take it away from them. Envy is I want what that person has, and if I can't get it, then I'm going to take it away from them. So how does that, how does that work? Well, let me give you a couple, just a couple examples if, if somebody at your workplace is enjoying some degree of success, they've been promoted or they have a position uh, that, that you want and that you can't get, you could slander, you could falsely accuse them, you could do it passive aggressively to try to get them removed from that position or to not enjoy that promotion or to get taken away, whatever it may be, whatever you can do to get it taken away. That's what envy will produce, functionally taking life away from somebody. Or if you want the, uh, what appears to be well-behaved kids, kind of a perfect family, comfortable life, while your life is full of all kinds of trouble, you can begin to gossip in a way that is ultimately an attempt to steal that person's joy. If I can't have that, then I'm going to steal that joy away, Right? Or you may want the, the sleek, trim, fit body that somebody has, and you can't get it, however hard you try. And so you may begin to, 
to, to spread rumors that that person clearly has an eating disorder, something clearly is going on, right? This is the way that envy, right, produces anger and eventually comes out in slanderous words. Or if somebody's, if you envy somebody's wealth and their status, you can begin harboring bitter thoughts towards that, that person. And maybe even begin having those thoughts come out to others that says clearly the reason they're wealthy is because they're greedy. They don't give. They're not generous. Right? I mean, this is what happens when envy gets a hold of the heart and produces anger because you don't have something that you want and I'm going to bring somebody else down or take it away from them. That that's what envy produces. It's slanderous words. Leviticus 19.16 makes this explicit connection. Listen, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Slander and, and taking life go hand in hand. James chapter 3, verses 6, 8, and 9 describe it well. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Ah, that's describing your words. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Curse, that means steal life, take life. Made in the likeness of God, there's the connected connection to the image of God. You're stealing an image that does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Second cause of murder, lack of forgiveness. Lack of forgiveness. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus addresses this head on in Matthew 5 as one of, the, one of the causes of murder or the various forms that takes on when you steal life. Look at Matthew 5 verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now understand what Jesus is saying here. Murder physical, spiritual, emotional, physical murder, words, slander, gossip. Remember, we're talking all the forms of murder here. Starts in the heart. That before murder ever takes on a physical expression outside of you, you murder someone in your heart. That it starts with anger and it starts with bitterness in the heart. And from there it escalates. And even the description in Matthew 5 here, you go from an insult to you fool, and I'll, I'll spare you the details, but just understand that's an escalation, right, of what happens. The anger turns into vicious words, to very vicious words, to more vicious words, right? There's an escalation that goes on there when anger gets hold of the heart. And then Jesus makes this interesting comment. He basically says, if you find yourself in worship and you realize that somebody has something against you, which means that you're aware that you have said something murderous to somebody, 
You've gossiped or you've slandered, you've insulted. You're the one that's done it and you're in worship and you realize that somebody has something against you because of how you've hurt them. Jesus says, you need to leave worship and go reconcile. You say, wow, that's, that's pretty harsh. Why? And the reason is because lack of reconciliation and lack of forgiveness leads to death. It leads to death. Which means there's probably a good number of people in this room this morning who are violating the sixth commandment because you have failed to give forgiveness, grant it, or you have failed to receive it. And and when you're in that place, bitterness starts to fester in the heart, anger festers in the heart, and eventually it comes out. And so we see that lack of forgiveness causes murder. I mean, think about it. Think about your own family. Maybe some of you are right in the middle of it right now. Lack of forgiveness and lack of reconciliation rips families apart. It rips classes apart. It rips social circles apart. It rips communities apart. It rips countries apart. When lack of forgiveness gets hold of the heart and sits there, it produces murder, steals the image of God in yourself and in the other person. Last cause of murder that we see in the scriptures is injustice or a desire for revenge. Okay, we're going to see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 14 and 17 through 21. Take a look at it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it is that depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This desire for revenge or vengeance, that has ripped apart countries. It's ripped apart communities. It rips apart families. It becomes the ping pong match of vengeance going back and forth, back and forth. You know what the shock of the, the verses, or the verses I just read? The shock is verse 20. Paul says, no, I don't want you just to avoid vengeance. I don't want you just to avoid taking revenge on someone who has hurt you, someone who has wronged you, someone who has inflicted harm on you, right? In other words, an, an enemy. I don't want you just to avoid vengeance. I actually want you to feed him if he's hungry. I want you to give him a drink if he's thirsty. And you say, are you kidding me? And then he goes on to say, God says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance belongs to God. Why? Because vengeance involves judgment and judgment involves death. And God and God alone has the right to give life and also to take life away. 
and to impose judgment. And so he says, listen, I'll take care of vengeance. I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to feed him. I want you to give him a cup of water if they're thirsty. And when you do, you'll heat burning coals on their head. Now, what's that mean? It means this, that by loving them and displaying loving kindness to them, life-giving acts towards them, you bring on the pain of remorse, and hopefully they will repent and turn from death to life found in Jesus. And so you look at the causes of murder, envy, lack of forgiveness, injustice, desire for revenge, and you see why murder starts in the heart, because all three of those things start deep within the heart. So we've looked at what murder is, what causes it, now let's look at what produces life. Right? We've been in the negative. Now let's go to the positive. What does this command mean? on the positive side. As I've said, every one of the Ten Commandments has a positive to it. If it's written in the negative, there's a positive. And the positive here is, is, to, is to give life. Well, what produces life? How do, you, how do you become a life giver? I think first and foremost, there's a need for us to see life through the lens of life and death. It's not too simplistic to reduce the story of the Bible to a story of life and death. Life was teeming in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis 3, sin came in and destroyed life, brought on death. Death reigned until the Son of God came, Jesus, to bring life once again. And so if you want to reduce the world to very simple language, it's that, life and death. The forces of evil bring death. The Son of God, Jesus, brings life. John 10, 10. I, or the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and life to the full, right? Life and death. That everything you do in every moment of the day and every week is either giving life or taking life away. It's one of the two. And so the question is, are you pro-life? Now, I hope by this point, in this sermon that you see that pro-life is much more than a slogan that identifies with a campaign against abortion. Yes, it means that. Pro-life, yes, it speaks against the act of abortion, but it's so much bigger than that. In fact, I'll take it a step further. It's not are you pro-life and all that that encompasses, because it's big, but are you pro-Lord of life? Are you pro-Lord of life? Because there is no life apart from Jesus Christ. John chapter one says it this way, in him, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. That Jesus Christ himself is life. He doesn't just give you a product called eternal life. He doesn't give you something that's outside of himself. When Jesus says he brings life, he brings himself. And you experience it when you are united to him, when you're attached to him. That life comes when you're sharing the life of Jesus. It's John 15, it's the vine and the branches, right? A branch that's not plugged into the vine will die. 
a transactional relationship with Jesus. And by that, I mean that you have trusted him, believed in him, and you get something back, right? Yes, you have to believe, but a transactional relationship doesn't deliver this product of thing called life. Belief is attaching yourself to Jesus, being in vital union with him, having a dynamic relationship with him that you share his life because there's no life outside of him. It's a functional union with Jesus Christ that produces life. Now, how does this work? How does Jesus shatter the gates of death and bring life? And what's it look like for you to share his life? Let's go back to the three causes of murder, right? Envy, lack of forgiveness, injustice, or desire for revenge. Take envy, right? Envy is, I need that 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 person has to be happy. And Jesus Christ is the only person, God-man, that is ultimately going to make you happy, that's going to satisfy you. He's the only one that can go to the very core of your being, deep within your heart, and satisfy those desires within. There's no thing, person, thing in this created world, whatever you envy, that can do that. And so when you're functionally united to Jesus Christ, he satisfies that. And he eliminates that envy when you're functionally one with him. Or take lack of forgiveness. Scriptures make it very clear that when you're finding it hard to forgive somebody, and every one of us has been there, that when you're finding it hard to forgive somebody, that in that moment you have forgotten the depth of your own sin and what Jesus Christ did to forgive you and how much he had to forgive. How much of your sin and your mess and your evil and your rebellion and all that exists within the human heart that was placed on his shoulders on the cross. When you're functionally united to Jesus and you understand the depth of your sin that caused him to be crucified in your place, then you're quick to forgive other people. But if you're not functionally united to Jesus, it will be the speck in somebody else's eye, not seeing the log in your own eye. When you're functionally united to Jesus, you see the log in your eye and you're quick to forgive. Or take injustice, take the desire for revenge. How does, a, how does a functional relationship with Jesus eliminate that cause of murder? To get somebody back. Jesus' death and resurrection says that justice has been served once and for all. That there's not an act of sin, an act of evil, an act of wrongdoing that will go unpunished. That every act of sin in the history of the world and every act of sin in every life in this room and every person on the face of this earth will be punished. One of two ways. For those that have trusted Jesus, Jesus pays for it. For those that have not trusted Jesus or reject Jesus, that person pays for it. Justice will be served. Justice will be served. God's wrath will come down on sin. It either comes down on Jesus or it comes down on you. That means 
that when you have this desire for revenge, God says, leave vengeance to me. If you're functionally united to Jesus, then, you're, then you know that nothing will escape God's judgment. And you're free to love your enemy and to love them, hopefully, towards repentance, that they would repent and go from death to life in Christ. But that vengeance belongs to God. You don't have to get anybody back. God's gonna take care of that one way or another. It either rests on Jesus and he pays for it or a person pays for it. It it will get paid. And so you're free to love. You know, as we talk about this sixth commandment, obeying the sixth commandment means functionally being united to Jesus. But obedience to the sixth commandment doesn't start out there. And that's what I want to challenge us with this morning. It's very easy to look out in the world and say that needs to be fixed because that is a culture of death. Absolutely. We live in a culture of death on on a number of different fronts. But that's not where the sixth commandment starts. The sixth commandment starts in your heart. That's where it starts. In the same way that the kingdom of God doesn't start out there. The kingdom of God starts with Jesus, starts in your heart. It's a seed in your heart. And out of that, when we talk about our culture and the world and wanting a culture of life, it doesn't start out there. It starts in every single heart. And when there's a culture of life in the heart, which means a functional union with Jesus Christ, then life springs forth all around you in all your interactions, in all the spheres of influence that you have. And God builds his kingdom through Jesus and his followers here. And that's a kingdom of life. Let's pray. Father, There may be some here this morning that are right in the midst of the effects of murder. Maybe within their marriage. Maybe within their family or extended family. That life has taken on verbal warfare where the the weapon of words just gets launched and there's slander and gossip and insults and and the family becomes an atmosphere of death or the classroom becomes an atmosphere of death or the sports team becomes an atmosphere of death. Father, we understand that all that starts in our own hearts, that murder starts in the heart. And this morning, we recognize that, Jesus, you are our only hope for being life givers. And that being said, there may be some here this morning that maybe have thought that a transaction with Jesus has them in a good place. I I pray for every person here that, that you by your spirit would draw them into a functional relationship with you, Jesus. 
Not just a transaction that means eternal life down the road someday, but life now in you, Jesus. And that when that kingdom seed grabs hold of the heart, that we would have families that are teeming with life and not death. And that our neighborhoods then would be, would, would be around us and around our families and maybe in our homes and our yards and they would see there is something about this family or this couple or this person that is just springing forth life. And I want to know what's behind that. And Father, I pray that that would bring about amazing opportunities to share about the life giver, the only place that life comes from, and that is Jesus himself. Father, would you make us a people that are all about building your kingdom of life in a world of death, in and through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.